You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series, The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 200 of So You Want to Be a Writer. (laughs) That was the parade. Did you hear that? Did you hear that parade there? I I can see the streamers. I can see the champagne Out of control. Yeah, we're dancing in the streets. (laughs) Exactly, in the streets. Uh, My name is Valerie Koo, and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Congratulations, 200 episodes. Oh, uh, well, I'm well. Apparently, I'm dancing in the streets, Val. So yes. clearly, I'm very, very excited. Two hundred yes. episodes. I just, I'm still a little bit gobsmacked that we've been talking for so many years, <laughs> so much, so often, so long. <laughs> I know. And you think that we would be organised enough? to organise some streamers or balloons or party poppers or champagne. However, we are recording this. You actually promised me champagne last week, remember? We were supposed to be drinking champagne. And and yet here I am drinking water. (laughs) (laughs) I'm drinking French Earl Grey tea. We're such... Party animals. We are just out of control. I don't know. Well, it is the morning as we're recording this, so we probably shouldn't be drinking champagne at this hour. But what we can do tonight, Mm -hmm. you know, is drink champagne tonight and post our cheers to our whole listener community because you're all awesome and you got us to 200 episodes. Mm. We We could post that in the Facebook group. So, okay. um, so now and, I have you know, to go and drink celebrate. champagne tonight, right? Yes, yes. Well, I think I think that that's that's a wise choice. So okay. make sure you go and go get some, get okay. some champagne. I don't know and if the builder's going to cope with this. Like, if I come home and say, "Mate, I'm having champagne," he'll be like, "On a Monday." <laughs> well, this this episode will release on a Tuesday, so it'll be a Tuesday. <laughs> and no, no, there'll be a good celebration because the 200th episode, and honestly, listeners, we did not time it this way at all. This is complete and utter fluke. We did not time it this way. But the 200th episode releases on the very same day that Alison's book, Alison's latest book is released. I know. And, and you would so, think, wouldn't you? That we would have yeah. arranged a parade but for we, that, if nothing else. But yet. that is why you also have another excuse for champagne. So oh, yeah, absolutely. We've got to do it. Yes. We've got to do it. So Double what's back. the name of your new book? Oh, this is The Book of Secrets, and it is the first book in my new series, which is called The Adaban Cipher. 
by A.L. Tate, T-A-I-T, that's me, when my secret, not very secret writing name. And um, yes, it's out today. If you are listening today, it is out today and it is uh, very, very exciting. So it's kind of a strange time for an author is, is release day because it's sort of like, it's. I think we've talked about this before, you do think and expect that there should be a parade. Like you should walk out of your house in the morning and there's like dancing girls going past and a band and all that sort of stuff. But in actual fact, it's just, you know, me doing the school run. And, oh, although it's actually not, Val, it's not just me doing the school run. There is excitement tomorrow um, because we do record it, like like just so in case people were under the illusion that we were live, um, we do actually (laughs) record the day before it comes out. So um, tomorrow, um, so probably, you know, maybe around the time people are listening to this, I will Mm. actually also be on the ABC radio talking about my book. On the radio. I know, yes. I'm a little bit excited. That's pretty excited. exciting. And what it's is going the to be book hard, about? Though. It's going to be very difficult because I will, of course, be having to answer the questions and not ask the questions, Val, and you know. Ah, yes. No, you're good at that. Gonna, am I? Okay. Yeah, so I answer this question. Like, I'm not in control, though, and then I do, so I do find that a little bit, you know, Okay, awkward. answer this question. What is the book about and what age are the readers? Oh, okay. So the book is what is classified as a middle grade adventure. Uh, so which means that it's kind of the sweet spot of readership is probably around nine to 13. Although with the Mapmaker Chronicles, uh, it has been enjoyed by readers. You know, a lot of people have reported reading it to their sort of seven-year-olds who've also really enjoyed it. Good readers of eight have loved it and adults really, really enjoy it as well. And I think this one will have the same very broad appeal. Um, yes. um, it is a book about the book of secrets is a book about a, a boy and his name is Gabe and he has grown up in a monastery. And as the book opens, he is handed a book by a dying man and he is told to take it to Aiden. And this is a boy who has never been out of the monastery in his entire 14 years. He finds himself, you know, out in the dark night in the forest outside the monastery walls for the first time ever. And at the beginning of a very epic adventure and he runs into a quite extraordinary group of girls, which of course, if you think about it, could there be anything more foreign to a boy who's grown up in a monastery? Um, and so begins an enormous adventure. So that's uh, that's book one. And the entire book is written, in, uh, the book that he has been given, Gabe, uh, is written in code. No one's ever been able to read it. So of course, the big question we have to ask ourselves is why would you write a book that no one can read? I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. And the book is fantastic. So make sure you go and grab a copy of Alison's new book, The Book of Secrets. Now you can also, if just as an FYI to people, if you buy the book through uh, the link that we provide in the show notes, which you can find, of course, at soyouwanttobeawriter.com.au, that will send you to Booktopia. And we get a little tiny little commission from that. However, we donate the entire amount. We, we add up all the commissions over a period and we donate the entire amount of any books, uh, of any commissions earned 
when you buy through the link through the show notes to doggyrescue.com. So Doggy Rescue benefit also if you buy Alison's book through the Booktopia affiliate link um, on our website. And you might also benefit, Val, because the Book of Secrets has been chosen as one of the uh, picks for preteens in Booktopia's Kids Month this month. And if you buy the book through them, through that link, uh, you go into the draw to win $1,000 worth of books. Fantastic. That's Mm -hmm. all the more reason. So head on over. I know, seriously. Like it's just gifts all round, isn't it? All round, (laughs) all round. Um, And we also have, because it's our 200th episode, another gift for our listeners. If you haven't yet completed our survey, we would love for you to complete it because after 200 episodes, Alison and I realised we need to make sure that the next 200 are delivering (sighs) stuff that you're interested in, what you want, you know, whether or not you want the word of the week or not. Oh, you know what? I have to say, I am so gobsmacked by how incredibly. I, I honestly think that we need Word of the Week T-shirts. You've got a cult going on out there. How is this possible? With Word of the Week, well, Word of the Week is coming up later in this episode. But if you complete this survey, we will give you twenty dollars to use uh, on on a course at the Australian Writers Centre. So you just need to complete the survey. Survey at writerscentercomau slash podcast survey. That's writerscentercomau slash podcast survey. Now, we want to give a big shout out to Veggie Mama. Now, you know Veggie Mama, don't you? I do, Veggie the wonderful Stacey. Oh, hello, Veggie Stacey. Mama. Hello, Veggie Mama. Thank you so much for leaving a review on iTunes. And Veggie Mama has said an absolute gem, she's called the review, and she says, Val and Al consistently dish out both useful and current information about the world of writing in a relatable way with a great sense of humour. Their practical tips from real-world experience are invaluable and this podcast is one of the best sources of free education about all styles of writing. I, for one, am grateful for their generosity and have benefited greatly from it. Happy 200th episode from a long-time listener, ladies. I'll have a slice or two of Banoffee to celebrate. Woohoo! Team Banoffee! <laughs> You can have you can have my slice of banoffee, Stacey, okay? <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Stacey. We really appreciate you taking the time to leave us a review on iTunes. Thank it's Me just, too. you know, that's it's just gorgeous. Made our day. And if any other listeners have 30 seconds to leave us a review or rating on iTunes, we'd really be grateful because it certainly helps us in the rankings. Let's now move on on our 200th episode to the world of writing and publishing shall we? Let's. What a good idea, (laughs) given that's the point of the entire exercise. (laughs) Okay. So I found this link on bustle.com and it's called 11 apps for writers that can get, that can help you get your masterpiece completed in no time. Now, the thing is we often talk about different apps for writers. We often come back to the same ones. We come back to Scrivener. We come back to Evernote. We come back to, you know, Ulysses or OmniWriter, but there's some new ones on the market. Yes. And so these are a bunch that, and we'll put the link in the show notes, of course, um, but I just wanted to mention some of them here. 
Twitter and uh, one is called Wordsmith as in W-E-R-D, Smith, yeah. right? Yeah. And um, it says that uh, it can transform your device into the writing studio of your dreams. So it has word processing. It's got goal trackers. It's got formatting. It's got online portfolio publishing options. And it seems to have everything but the kitchen sink and also lots of different interfaces like depending on what you want to, you know, visually what you want to be typing on. Mm-hmm. So um, whether you want a black background or a sepia background or a white background or whatever. So there's so many apps these days and they're just getting better and better and better, I'm noticing, because obviously mm-hmm. technology is just making things a lot easier. One thing, because I only discovered this list this morning, so I haven't downloaded them all yet, and I'm go- this the next one I'm definitely going to use and I will report back as to whether it's good or not. All right. But I, I love a mind map. I don't know. Do you do mind maps? But I do uh, look, all the time. This is quite hilarious because I, um, when I wrote my book, Career Mums with Kate Sykes, mm. um, so it was a book about, it was a nonfiction book that I wrote about oh, maybe five years ago now about, um, it was about sort of all the stuff that mums needed to know to get back to work, you know, to kind of get through that sort of maternity leave period and getting back into work and all of that sort of stuff. And yeah. Kate Sykes um, was running a site at the time called Career Mums and she's, you know, she's kind of a guru about this stuff. And one of the things, one of the chapters that we included was about mind mapping because she's a massive, you know, proponent of the mind mapping um, technique. And of course, mind mapping is not generally my way forward. And um, anyway, so we did this whole chapter and she, she was trying to convince me that I needed to do this, you know, and I was like, really? I don't know about that, you know. Anyway, so I found myself a couple of years later, I was doing, I don't know what I was working on, but something. And I couldn't, I couldn't kind of get through it. Like I was trying to, I think I was trying to figure out where I, where I was with my writing career and where I was spending all my time and was I spending my time in the right places and, you know, it was all that kind of stuff. Um, I was having a big picture moment and um, I thought I sort of wasn't making any breakthroughs and I thought, you know what, maybe today's the day. So I get out the butcher's paper and I get out the coloured pens and I sit down at the table and I did the whole mind map thing and I actually found it incredibly useful. I did. Go. I know. I'm such have a non-believer. <laughs> uh, yes, I'm saying that I have. I did it again recently because again, same situation. I was kind of like trying to work out what my next, what my next project was going to be because I'm actually working on about three different things at the moment, and they're kind of across three different areas of. They're they're all. Uh, um, fiction, but they're across three different sort of age groups and things. And I was just trying to figure my way through what the best thing for me to do next was going to be, like which of these I should focus on. And so I, yeah, I found myself back there with my butcher's paper and my coloured pens, which, you know, much to the boys' hysteria, they thought I was really funny. But you know, you don't need to use giant butcher's paper and coloured pens. Oh, I just like it. Okay. Okay. Because, but that for me would be almost a hindrance because it would need, I would need space. I would need the colored pens, you know, I just do it like on a four with a, with one pen. Well, I I just found, do you know what I mean? It was one of those situations. I think I actually put on Facebook that day before I did it, I was like, I need a whiteboard. Like it it was actually Mm. like, there was that much going on in my head that I just sort of felt like I needed a really big Big space. space to Fair get enough. It all out. Yeah. Anyway. It, when well, I've had moments like that, <laughs> well, when I've had moments like that, I went out and bought the whiteboard and then never used it again. <laughs> right. I didn't buy the whiteboard. I don't have yeah, any so space for a whiteboard. Don't buy so the I didn't whiteboard. Buy the whiteboard. No. No. But um, so one, one thing you do have when you have kids is butcher's paper because, yes. you know, craft. Mm. 
Yes, yes. So there is a mind mapping app <laughs> called right. Mindly and it looks really, really cool, really colourful. So that would help you with your coloured pens thing. But it's all in the palm of your hand on your device. So mm. it's free as well. So that one, I'm, I'm, I'm a big mind mapper. I used to be an even more bigger mind ma- <laughs> more bigger. I used to be an even <laughs> bigger. bigger. Are you a bigger <laughs> yeah. mind mapper? <laughs> I used to be a bigger mind mapper and I used to mind map every day. But now I only do it like once a week. So I will definitely be trying out this app um, and we'll see how we go. Mm. All right. Yes. So there is also um, a bunch of other apps like Unblock, which has a series of writing prompts and um, a story tracker, which helps you keep track of your you know, projects and your deadlines and your different story submissions and all of that. I mean, that one's seven ninety nine, and I just think, you know what, Excel spreadsheet for that, mm-hmm. I, I reckon. I don't think you quite need um, a story tracker because I don't think you're going to have that many stories that you need an mm-hmm. app for it and, well, an app that you have to pay seven ninety nine for. I sound really cheap, don't I? You do, seriously, seven ninety nine. Come on. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm all for the free apps. But anyway, uh, so we will put the link in the show notes, which you can find at soyouwanttobeariter.com.au. Oh. Now, you have a link for us. Do I? Okay, good. Yes, I do. Of course I do. Um, Now, I wanted to talk to you a little bit today, Valerie, about a post that I found on The Right Life um, called Seven Social Media Tips for Writers Who Want to Get Noticed. And I sort of clicked on it thinking, yeah, yeah, whatever, you know, like thinking that there would be pretty much the same stuff that you see in every single article along these lines. But there were actually a couple of things in it that I thought, hmm, okay. So one of them is – So there's things like, you know, using Instagram quotes to kind of, you know, to help put your book out there and there's making the most um, of your Instagram bio, which is true. A lot of authors don't actually make the most of their Instagram bio. Got to make sure that whatever link it is that you have in that bio is actually a useful link to you. And that's not necessarily just a link back to the homepage of your website um, because, like, I often will put up things like uh, we'll put up a, a little sort of Canva, you know, uh, picture of something that I've written on my blog. So I make sure that my Instagram link actually goes straight to my blog so that the latest blog post is going to be at the top and people don't have to like poke around my blog trying to find it. But that actually wasn't the thing that I was going to talk about. So let's not go down that road too far. Um, okay. No, I wanted to talk to you about, have you ever um, done any blogging on the LinkedIn Pulse, you know, the native article publishing platform in LinkedIn? Have you ever used it to blog at all? I have not. I have put uh, long posts on LinkedIn, but I have yeah. not use LinkedIn polls? Well, I've actually put a couple of, I've actually put a couple of articles up there, um, recently because I realized there's a couple of things that I have got going on. This is all part of my mind mapping strategy, Val, obviously, mm-hmm. um, is that, you know, that I've realized, um, that in nine years of blogging, I have an enormous, 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 enormous um, yep kind of catalogue of writing articles there. And while mm. they sort of like, while I obviously I, I, I reschedule them in Buffer and I use, I sort of put them out into the world via Twitter and various things, the mm. idea of being able to re 
repurpose those um, blog posts and put them in front of a different audience is quite attractive to me. So I have been investigating different ways to do that. And Medium has come up a lot, uh, medium.com. There's a lot of writers who are using blogging on Medium to actually, you know, find new communities. And so I've been looking at that. But I have also done a couple of posts on on LinkedIn uh, through their article publishing platform. And the reason I've done it was just to, it was more of an experiment than anything was to sort of take some of the content that I already have and repurpose it into LinkedIn to put it in front of that sort of more professional audience. Um, And the, the good thing about doing it that way is that if you republish content from your blog onto Pulse, onto LinkedIn, it's not considered duplicate content by Google. So Mm. you're not actually interfering with any search, you know, any SEO that you have in the existing article. Um, So that's quite attractive to me. Um, But what I also do find when I sort of take things across to a different platform like that is I do consider the audience and the LinkedIn audience is slightly different to the audience that might just be wandering past my blog, um, you know, my own blog. So I do tend to change things up a little bit and sort of um, I try to keep uh, anything I put on LinkedIn, I try to keep relatively like dot point wise, you know, like I'm sort of like looking at subheads and I'm looking Mm. very closely at, you know, five tips for X, Y, Z, um, which can just be a great way to repurpose an article that you've already written, you know, in a different sort of style or tone. Uh, So there's that. That was one thing that I kind of like thought, yeah, I remember doing that because I did that a little while ago and then I never really went back to it. So I probably should do that. But the other one that I wanted to ask you about as well was Facebook's instant articles. Um, mm. Now, have you ever used it? Or I mean, I hadn't, didn't even realise that Facebook had instant articles, to be perfectly frank with you. No, I've never used Facebook instant articles. So um, because I just find that the, the, the regular posting function on Facebook is, is fine <laughs> and I just mm. use that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, it's the same deal. Um, it's the same deal with Pulse. You can read publish content onto Facebook's native platform without it being flagged as duplicate content. So it's something that I might I, I might look into a little further for all of us and just have a look at what it is. If anyone out there has actually used Facebook instant articles to any sort of effect, either positive or negative, please let us know. Like um, if you're in our Facebook group, uh, the So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community, um, you know, pop a post in there and let us know what your experience has been with it because I, um, as I said, I, to be honest with you, didn't even realise that it existed. Um, and given the amount of time that I spend with this stuff, I was kind of surprised by that. But um, with regards to your uh, comment about Facebook's, you know, posting platform, you know, um, they do actually mention also in this Right Life uh, post, which was written by Vanessa Gillette. Um, they talk about the Facebook mini blog. Um, yes. And someone who does this a lot is Elizabeth Gilbert, of course, yes. the author of Magic and various other things. Um, she blogs straight into her newsfeed. So she will write, you know, five, six hundred, seven hundred words directly um, into a Facebook post. And she uses that as her blog. Um, and she doesn't blog anywhere else. That's where she does her blogging. Um, and I just wondered what you thought about that approach as well. 
I think that that approach is actually more effective. I definitely mm-hmm. think that using Facebook just in your regular posting platform uh, as a mini blog where you don't have to just say, hey, I just finished watching the finale of Game of Thrones, but actually writing a mini blog post, I think that that's really, really um, effective because one of the things that I believe is happening with Facebook instant articles, which when it was um, when it came out, I think shortly after it came out, that was like very shortly after it came out. I think that that was when Facebook started changing their their the algorithm for what uh, appears in your newsfeed. Right. So now, as you know, what appears in your newsfeed isn't necessarily a chronological order of all the all your friends and their feeds. No. It will it will um, highlight the ones that you engage with the most, um, mm. most you, the ones who are closest to you, your friends and family that you interact with the most, and they're going to appear in your newsfeed as a priority over other people who you don't interact with. And mm. um, I believe that as a result – Facebook instant articles, uh, if you don't interact with that particular person or brand or whatever, then that's not going to appear in their newsfeed. Whereas Mm. when you use Facebook as a mini blog, sure, the same rules apply, but it seems to be less so for some reason. So I I do think that um, Facebook instant articles is a great uh, idea in theory, but in practice I'm a big – uh, advocate of the Facebook mini blog, which is just a fancy way of write, saying write a long post on your Facebook. But what do you think about this notion of using only the Facebook mini blog as opposed to having a blog and, you know, perhaps repurposing content onto Facebook? Oh, uh, um, yeah, yeah. So I would mm. actually do both. I would actually yeah. have a blog, but I would post it as the mini blog on, yeah. on Facebook. I wouldn't only ever only use Facebook, except for basic things like I just finished watching the final episode. Yeah. I don't even know why I say Game of Thrones because I don't even watch Game of Thrones. I did <laughs> watch the final episode of Kingdom, best show ever. So I just, yeah, I would post that. Okay, best show ever, <laughs> hashtag best show ever. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I agree with, and I agree with you on that too because I think, you know, you you highlighted one of the main main issues with just, you know, relying on Facebook um, with your, by saying, you know, they changed the algorithm and everything mm. changed, you know, and I think that um, the problem with relying on uh, Facebook or Instagram or any of those uh, platforms as your sole kind of social media, um, you know, presence on the internet is that they mm. do change things up so regularly and things yes. that work for you, you know, you can disappear overnight out of people's yeah. feeds and then getting yeah. that reach back is just so incredibly difficult. So um, at least if you have your blog or, you know, you've got your own space on the internet, um, mm. people can always find you. They always know where you are and I think that that's important too. Yes, and you haven't lost everything. Mm. Mm. Yes, and of course, this and other fantastic platform building tips, including a blueprint on exactly what you need to do to build your author platform, can be found in Alison's fantastic course. Of course, it's called How to Build Your Author Platform. And you can find out more at writercenter.com.au slash platform. That's writercenter.com.au slash platform. So let's move on to a link that I found in The Independent. I just thought that this was a cool, um, interesting insight uh, because it's it's about a book written by David Litt. Now, David Litt was a speechwriter 
for Barack Obama. Uh, but he started the job when he was quite young, like about 24 years old, and he started off kind of really assisting the speechwriters, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and his new book is called Thanks, Obama, My Hopey, Changey White House Years. <laughs> and it's it's um, it's written with humour and a lot of self-deprecation because he talks about being one of the less – you know, um, less top of the tree staffers in the White House. Mm. And he's now, he obviously, um, humour is obviously his thing because he now is head writer at uh, the comedy website Funny or Die and he writes about how Barack Obama didn't even know his name until um, Obama's second term. Um, So the book is out uh, late September and he says in his book, Speechwriter to the President, as in the title, Speechwriter of the President, suggested access and influence. In reality, I was a kind of rhetorical handyman, keeping our stump speech up to code. And he talks about that fact that, because, you know, I mean, I don't know, did you watch West Wing? I, yes. I loved West Wing. Yes, oh, so did a I. good show, such a good yep. show. And they would often have those scenes where they would walk in the corridors of the White House and mm. do the walk and talk mm. and um, – because they were always so busy and they always had to walk a really long way and that's um, where they had their conversations. And uh, someone asked David, was he like the guy in the walk and talk? And he said, "Mm, no, he was more like the guy who handed the piece of paper to the other person who would actually do the walking and then step out of frame. So, (laughs) (laughs) um, And he also says, being introduced to politics by the West Wing is like being introduced to sex by Deb- Debbie Does Dallas. The real thing is more satisfying, <laughs> but it also, also, but also, it doesn't live up to fantasy in certain ways. Um, and uh, the the cool thing I think about this book is it's just a different look at um, you know the otherwise earnest memoirs that come out of the White House, and I think it's also what it sounds like is a sneak peek into the way Obama used humor, and because um, they ha- they they employed you know people who had uh, who 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 ran the joke writing department in a sense. <laughs> mm comedy people from LA to 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 be part of the messaging that Obama put out. Um, uh, and one of the things David Litt says is, the way that I always phrase it is that American history would have been totally the same without me, except for a couple of jokes. <laughs> <laughs> you don't really think about them employing joke writers, do you? Like it's not really no. something that you – It's not if you, I mean, you would be sort of thinking more the earnest kind of fist-shaking yes. type would, would get jobs at the White House writing speeches. But, yeah, I, don't, I never really considered that there'd be the joke guy in the corner. No, me either, because when I've watched speeches that Obama has done, like at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, and they're just, he's just got perfect timing in terms Mm. of his delivery. And Mm. I just used to think, oh, he's just a genius. But obviously, (laughs) he's had all all this help. Speechwriters are there for people like you, Val. (laughs) Yes, exactly, exactly. And it's funny, like many, many years ago, I toyed with the idea of doing speech writing. And um, because I did work for somebody who wrote a lot of speeches and they were very good, wrote a lot of speeches like for CEOs and and also uh, politicians. And I thought, um, 
Oh, that, it was such a cool insight into the speech writing process. And I thought at one stage I'd want to get in, do that a bit more. I assisted a lot at the stage, at that stage, and wrote some of the minor stuff. But I thought, I, you know, this is what I want to do um, much more of. And but I never had that that sense of humour. <laughs> Um, oh, so what? I don't oh, think no way. I don't, <laughs> I don't think hilarious. I <laughs> yeah, I don't think I could have pulled it off. But I remember at the time, and this was you know ages ago, and in the time when there were job ads in the paper as opposed to on the internet. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's quite a long, long time ago. Wow. And I remember New Woman, as in the glossy magazine. That yeah. was like Marie Claire and Cleo and Cosmo and Elle. So I remember New Woman had an ad in the paper and it was, and in, in big writing, it was for a speeches writer, as in S-P-E-E-C-H-E-S, a speeches writer. And oh. I thought, what in the world would New Woman need yeah. for a speeches writer? I'm like... That's so bizarre. And I thought about it and I thought, could they, like, because it was a full-time role. I thought there's no way they could need a, you know, the editor was making so many speeches that they would need a speeches writer. No. And it dawned on me after thinking about it, like, uh, you know, while I was having my croissant orange juice, it dawned on me that they actually wanted a features writer. (gasps) Oh. Yeah, and I thought, I bet you they wanted a features writer and that someone's... (laughs) Now that's funny. (laughs) Yeah, and someone's called, read the ad over the phone and not had, you know, good diction. They didn't go to Mrs Gig like in year eight like I did. (laughs) Mrs Gig? Yeah, that was a nice. See, Val, this is the thing I love about you. Like every single episode there's some new revelation for me. Mrs. Uh, Gig. Yeah, yeah, I did speech in year eight. Or was it year seven? I can't remember. Um, because I just thought it was all really in blight and it'd be really cool to do speech. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Okay. Um, all right, yep. Uh, you know, like five go to boarding school or whatever. Not that it was boarding school. Um, I, I digress. So the next Dude. weekend, the next weekend over my orange juice and croissant, I opened the paper and there it is, features writer at New <laughs> Woman. <laughs> Jeez, you can imagine some of the um, applications they would have got in that first week, though, can't you? That would have been hilarious. Yes, I would have loved to have seen them. Mrs. Gig would have had a thing or two to say, I reckon. Exactly. But imagine their realisation when they opened the paper that first Saturday (laughs) and just went, oh, my God, how embarrassing. Anyway, let's move on. Where are we? Come on, it's time to move on. This has been going on forever. Sorry. All right. Our competition this week is pretty exciting because we have three copies of 5050 to give away. Now, 5050, of course, is the latest book by Candace Fox, who is a presenter mm-hmm. at the Australian Writers' Centre, and she has collaborated with the incredibly iconic James Patterson on her latest book because last year uh, they hit number one, I think, on the New York Times with uh, Never Never, the book that they mm-hmm. wrote together. They and so this is the second book, 50-50. So Sam Blue stands accused of the brutal murders of three young students, their bodies dumped near the Georges River. Only one person believes he's innocent, his sister, Detective Harriet Blue, and she's determined to prove it. So very cool. Um, uh, I haven't read it yet, but I'm keen to because it was interesting. Uh, There was a character in Never Never called Valerie. (laughs) 
Right. Are you hoping she'll appear again in this one? Or was she, or was she killed off in Never Never? Just out of interest? Well, it was interesting to see her character traits. But anyway, mm. uh, <laughs> um, so if you want to win, uh, we have three copies to give away. And go to writerscentercomau slash win for your chance to win one of these books. That's writercentercomau slash win. And, of course, Candice uh, has created the incredible course for us. It's so good. It's so fascinating. I've been through the entire course myself and I was riveted every single minute because it's called Anatomy of a Crime, How to Write About Murder. I know more about murder now than I probably would have possibly imagined. Uh, But it's really interesting because it goes through every single step of the murder process from premeditation right down to, um, you know, committing the act and how to write about it to, uh, you know, the police investigation. And if you're interested in that, just go to murdercourse.com. All right. Now, (laughs) Al. (laughs) Are you trying to Are raise you... the tension here? <laughs> trying to raise the stakes, make it more right. high stakes. I'm ready. Are you ready for the word of the week? I am so ready, Val. So, okay. so ready. Okay, so I'm going to ask you a question. Whose name inspired the word mesmerise? I have no idea, Val, but I know you can't wait to tell me. I can't wait to tell you. Okay, so it's... France Anton Mesmer, who was a doctor who studied in Vienna, but then later in Paris, where he was living at the time, he used to combine hypnosis or supposed hypnosis and the process of laying on hands to put his patients into a trance-like state. And then Louis XVI investigated the doctor because he thought that his claims were spurious, who was then driven into exile. But that is where the word mesmerise comes from. It's named after Dr. Franz Mesmer. There you go. Very nice. You know that? I like the way you threw spurious in there as well. Yeah, good word, huh? <laughs> spurious. Very nice. Spurious. All right. Let's move on then to our writer in residence. This is mm-hmm. so cool. I'm so excited about this. Shankari Chandran uh, has released her debut novel, The Barrier, and we have a great chat about this and how she um, needed a breakthrough in her writing process and um and, and, and she got one and she's now been uh, – the, the book is doing very well and it's, um, it's, a, it's a thriller and she, she did the um, crime and thriller course at the Australian Writers' Centre and it made all the difference and she's now released her successful debut first novel, The Barrier. Thanks so much for joining us today, Shankari. Thank you for having me, Valerie. It's a pleasure. Now, I'm so excited. I'm just so excited and thrilled for you. I have in my hand The Barrier by Yay. you, Shankari Chandran. And, oh, you know, look, first of all, let's just set the scene for our listeners. And for those readers who haven't read the book yet, can you tell us what the book is about? 
I'd love to. The Barrier is set in 2040. It's so it's a post-apocalyptic thriller. The world has been destroyed by an Ebola pandemic and global religious wars. There is a wall built between the West and the East. The world is divided into two. There is a ban on the movement of people, particular people of particular religions. Uh, there is a global vaccination program and another global crisis looming. Now, how in the world <laughs> did you come up with this idea? And I have to say, from page one, you hook the reader in. And even though it is set in this a post-apocalyptic world, something that I don't relate to, many well, no reader can relate to in, in, in any sense, and in this world that's so far into the future, you, as soon as you start reading, it's totally believable and you totally hook the reader in. So, you know, well done for that. But I just want to know how in the world <laughs> do you come up with this really qu quite complex range of ideas and, and such a far off world? Thank you, um, Barry. It's funny you ask that because the answer between you, me, and whoever's listening is that I was sitting by the side of my pool, of the, the school pool, watching my four children swim up and down endlessly on part of a new swimming program. And um, I was bored and pretending to be engaged and wishing that an asteroid would hit the planet. And um, and then I thought, well, that's a little selfish. Let's, let's envisage another way to end the world. And at the time, I I was reading a lot of dystopic fiction because I was trying to screen it for my children. My older children were getting to the age where they wanted to read Hunger Games. And so I was pre-reading to make sure it was okay for them. I was also watching a lot of news. I was binge watching the news because I had just finished um, my first manuscript and I had put that down. I was taking a break and I was now re-entering the world by watching the news. So I'm reading dystopic fiction. I'm watching the news and troubled by the fact that they both look alarmingly alike. Mm. And so from there... You know, it sort of generated this this fear and anxiety within me about the world that I was leaving to my children. Uh, and for me, the best way to cope with anxiety is just to write. And you know, I let the fear out of out of the box and onto the page. Wow! And you produce an incredible novel in the process. <laughs> so that's kind of a good result from therapy, I guess. Hey. So, cheaper than therapy, let me tell you. Yeah, cheaper than therapy. So just take me back because you've had a career as a lawyer. Can you just give me a very brief history of your career until this point? I will try to be brief. Um, I worked for 10 years in the social justice field, working for an international corporate law firm. I ran their, um, their social justice program around the world. So we were based in about 30 countries at the time. And my job was to look at identifying social needs within the communities in which we operated and to match those community needs with the skills and the resources that our law firm had. Uh, and so the projects ranged from trying to ensure representation for detainees in Guantanamo Bay to developing uh, training programs for lawyers in Rwanda, which was rebuilding its legal profession post the genocide, um, to providing lawyers to do that kind of typical street law work um, in legal clinics around the world. Now, did you always want to be a writer during this time or, or did this some sort of come upon you, this urge come upon you later in life? How did that work? I have always wanted to be a, a writer pretty much from the time I was 10, actually, when Mrs. Vandermark gave me my first journal and said, just keep writing. 
um, and I've but I and I then later a little bit later came to the law and and wanted to or realized that the law could do something useful and the law enabled me to write um, but throughout my sort of school and my 20s and 30s I just I dabbled in a little bit of fiction you know I'd write a little bit and then put the pen down and, and really lacked the courage to go much further with it than 500 words. Wow, this is way more than 500 words. Yeah, this is 85,000, I think. When did it become a reality for you in, in that you decided, I'm going to push past the 500 words, I'm going to actually write a whole manuscript? I was when I moved from London to when I moved back from London to Sydney, I started to blog um, in order to help me make that transition, that remigration back home. And I was doing the 500 words and really sensed that I was building my courage and building my voice. Um, and was getting ready to give that big novel a go. You know how all people who want to be writers feel they have that one novel, at least that one novel within them? <laughs> yes. So I felt like that that one novel was sort of bubbling to the top. Um, and so in about 2012, I put aside the blogging and consciously sat down to give it a go. Right. And then I, yeah, I wrote every day and just kept going, as Mrs. Andermark told me. <laughs> so, but blogging is very, very, very different to writing a novel. So, how did the blogging uh, contribute to to that journey towards finally wanting to write the novel? I think the blogging was about about helping me gain confidence in my vo in my voice actually, um, because I initially started the blogging you know for that therapeutic reason of helping me reintegrate back to Australia, and I found then there was a readership for my blog. And that was incredibly reassuring. And eventually, a lot of what I was writing appeared on Mia Friedman's site, Mamma Mia. And um, and, I, and it became addictive. You know, all people who write that will, will sort of will, – this will resonate with them. It, once you start, you just can't stop. <laughs> and it became this daily – exercise that was energizing and exhilarating, but also really calming and meditative for me. And I really, I just couldn't stop. And it, it's such a pleasure and a thrill for me to sit down. You know, when I know that I have got a day ahead of writing, mm. I'm just flying in the morning. <laughs> uh, and at the end of a good day of writing, it's just such a good feeling. Do you still blog? Occasionally, um, I have lately because I've been so incensed with various things that are happening in the world. I think it, I think every time I watch the sort of late night update on Trump, um, mm -hmm. I sit down to pen an angry blog. But I, I do find it very hard to switch between the headspace required for a blog yes. and the headspace of writing because writing is so immersive. Fiction, mm. that sort of long distance fiction, is really immersive, and you have to sit with your characters yes. and in that world and just be very quiet and let them do their thing and, and you create them and they create themselves and that process is very different from blogging. Blogging is like having a chat with yourself or your best girlfriend, you know, and, and yes. for that it's loads of fun. I really enjoy it but it's a very different headspace. So you were blogging and then you decide I'm actually going, I'm ready now to write a longer piece of fiction and then you <laughs> were at the swimming <laughs> lessons with your kids and thought about this dystopian future. And yep. so what 
was the what were the key things that you started with? Were they characters? Were they did you have a clear idea of the plot? How did it actually emerge in the very first period? When I started to do this, I had this concept. It's it was the concept of a world uh, that had been destroyed by something. I wasn't sure at that stage by what. And a world that was then following this apocalypse had been reorganized with religion being used as a tool. And that was the concept. And I remember discussing it with my brother on a holiday and just saying, guess what? I've got this idea and personally, pat, 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 I think it's brilliant. And my brother, of course, my brother, and I think my brother's probably the only person in the world that finds me funny um, or insightful. And he was like, yes, that's great. Let's go with that. And of course, we've had the same upbringing. So, you know, we're both fascinated by religion and the way it shapes people and societies and the way that it can be used to construct identity and to deconstruct communities. And so it started with that concept of religion and a post-war new world order and I then I sat down and just allowed myself to do that sort of magic pen writing Mm. and I picked a female character I I had in my mind I was initially planning on writing this novel for my children as as an answer to Hunger Games I was going to give them the the Australian Sri Lankan left-handed version of of the Hunger Games Um, and and in doing so I had created a a Sri Lankan Australian Katniss Everdeen who looked an awful lot like me (laughs) and I wrote the first sort of five to ten thousand words got to the end of that and and two things I came to two realizations first was that I didn't particularly like my central character or she 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 wasn't enthralling me mm. however another character had emerged called Noah and the second realization was that this novel that I was creating for my children was far too violent for my children and was <laughs> was now no longer a young adult piece of fiction but an adult fiction mm. um, and so I then took that that character who had emerged from the writing and allowed him to be the main character. And I just gave him the, the, the central space. Um, and I began in the first draft, I think we began with a torture scene. I won't say much more than that. But we began, we began with a torture scene and I just allowed him into that small room, um, which I know quite well from my work as a lawyer and the work that I've done looking at the way that states abuse power and the way that states can interact with citizens or non-citizens and combatants. I have um, some awareness of what the inside of that room looks like, where Mm. the state takes individuals to be tortured. I allowed Noah into that room. I gave him some tools and I just sat and watched what happened. Wow. And so did you draw on a lot of experience from your work as a lawyer? You've just described one situation where you have, but you you know this book also covers lots of elements of, um, well the Ebola of, of Ebola of, of you know, sort of military like situations. What did you have to do to research the other stuff that it seems so far from uh, the life of a mother of four children living <laughs> in Sydney going to swimming lessons? 
Yeah, absolutely right. It's amazing what you think of by the side of the pool, Valerie. Um, I I had to do a lot of research for this novel. Um, my I have a lot of doctors in my family, and one of them is an immunologist who runs a tuberculosis laboratory. And I spent a lot of time with her, with my sister-in-law, understanding the way containment, the way disease works, the way containment works, and the way scientists approach vaccine development. So I really felt like I was I. I actually read a textbook or a textbook and a half on immunology, um, read a lot of, of papers, uh, journal articles and so on, and then spent a lot of time with her just understanding the, how she works, what that laboratory does, and how to then extend that science into science fiction. Mm. Uh, because although I would never typecast this novel as a science fiction novel, for me it's it's a high-concept thriller that deals with questions of morality and power. Mm. Uh, it has some science in it. And I wanted to both use existing science but extend that science and whilst creating new science, make sure that it was internally consistent and mm. internally robust so that the scientists um, if only so that the scientists in my family would read it and say, yes, that's actually, that sounds entirely plausible. Mm. Um, and so I went through that process. I did a lot of scientific research. And of course, as you know, you, you actually shed a lot of the research. So my mm. first draft was incredibly scientific. And I love that because I grew up with science and surrounded by doctors and scientists. Yeah. Um, but really for the reader, it, it wasn't necessary. It was important for me to read it and understand it and be able to use it authentically, but then to be confident enough to pull it out of the novel as well so that what I'm left with is something that feels real but has the pace that you want from a thriller. Yes. So on that point then, you I can – I can see how if you've done so much research, especially when you, you know, personally know immunologists and, and people who you can um, draw on for their expertise, I can, I can see how it can be tempting to include too much yeah. of the science and of the explanation. How did you then determine what to chuck out? I went through rounds and rounds of deletions, to be honest. Um, you know, my father is a neurosurgeon as well. So a lot of this novel looks at the way that faith um, operates within the human brain. So it, it looks at where does faith come from? Does it come from the outside? Does it come from within? Does it come from our heart, from our soul or from our brain? And my father is a neurosurgeon with now a growing interest in, in neuroscience and neurotheosophy, which is the, the, the study of the impact of religious practice on the brain. So, you know, I, as I said, I have grown up really loving neurosurgery. Um, and so it hurt me to take out the neurosurgery uh, and it hurt me to take out the science. But I kept um, trying to look at it and uh, from the perspective of the reader. And we learned this in the course that we did with the AWC, which is where L.A. Larkin taught us not only just not only to look at the thriller genre from the perspective of someone who's writing it, but to look at that from the perspective of someone who's reading it mm. and to ask yourself, what is it that you want? What are your expectations? You know, how fast do you want to be turning those pages? What do you want at the end of each chapter? Mm. And so when I look at looked at it from the perspective of a reader, and I am a very avid and passionate and often critical reader, when I 
looked at it, when I put that hat on, it really helped me in letting go of so much of the science Mm -hmm. and also some of the grief because the other thing that this novel explores is grief and that grief was um, initially based on conversations and a relationship that I have with uh, one of the first friends I made in the world who, you know, my childhood friend who lost her own daughter Mm -hmm. at a young age and so the main character in my novel has lost a child and a lot of the exploration of grief in this novel was my friend's own journey um, through her grief and her relationship with God and her faith as a result of this terrible loss of her child. And it was important to write that in that novel and to give Noah, the character, all of that history and that emotional baggage. And it was important for my friend to read it and it was important for me to write it. But it was also important to, at a certain point, be able to let go of that and to pull it back out. So it was a continuous process. And then eventually when the novel, um, when the manuscript went to Pan Macmillan, I sat down with their team and they were brilliant. Mm. They really very respectfully um, took me through that editorial process and showed me what they thought could be improved by pulling out. And so that rewriting process with them didn't actually involve me rewriting scenes or adding scenes in. It A lot of it was just about learning when and where to have the confidence to take a little bit out. Mm. So you were already well in your way with your novel and then you decided to do a course at the Australian Writers' Centre. So why did you? Because I had got to the point where I just couldn't help myself anymore. <laughs> I, I had produced this manuscript and I had produced it very quickly um, you know, over time, I was very determined to get this piece done. And I'd, I'd set myself the Stephen King challenge, which is you put super glue on your bum, you <laughs> shut the door and you write for six to eight hours a day. Um, and you aim to produce, I think Stephen King aims to produce about 3000 words a day. And I set myself because it was a school summer holidays. I was, could only write very So I think I'd set myself a thousand words a day during this period. And I, you know, at the end of that period, I had produced something like 70,000 words and I read it and I thought, you know, I love, I love the concept. I love the, I love the main character Noah and this sidekick had emerged, um, Sahara, the sort of undercover secret agent um, and assassin Sahara had emerged mm. and um, and I loved them both and I, I loved the scientist, the third part of this triangle, there's a, a scientist in South Asia, the rogue scientist that they must investigate but I just knew that I wasn't doing them justice, I knew that I was almost there but not quite mm. and I How did you know? Oh, you know, when you read, I don't know, when you read a novel, you read a book, you watch a film and you think, that's brilliant. Or you read something and you think, actually, that needed something more. It was missing something and I couldn't put my hand on what it was missing. I was confident by then in, in certain elements of it, confident of the the plot no, actually, no. Confident of the characters. Let me <laughs> let me reframe. <laughs> I was confident of the concept, confident of the characters, but felt that the plot and what they were doing, what I was enabling them to do and what they were doing was not enough. Um, and I, I just couldn't work out how to fix it. So I was listening to podcasts. I was reading textbooks on writing. I was deconstructing thrillers. I was watching thrillers. I just couldn't do it myself. Right. And so... When you, what about the course changed or made it click for you to figure out 
what you needed to change to make it work? Uh, I every every minute of that course was useful, and I wished that I had done it months before I had started on the on the project. It just from the beginning. Um, L.A. Luckin was very, very direct and brutal about the <laughs> thriller. And I like that. I'm a lawyer. She's very respectful and very kind, but incredibly direct. And she knows the genre. So she was able to break down the thriller into its conventions and to say, this is what works. And we know that this works because we have, because there's this body of brilliant thrillers that tell us that this works yes. and readers tell us that this works. So trust the conventions of the genre and you are allowed to play with them. And, and she encouraged us to do that in, in the future. But once we had fully understood those conventions, so the course was about breaking down the genre and looking at the components and looking at real examples and examples that resonated with me because a theoretical discussion of, you know, of how to write a thriller isn't actually going to help me. And, you know, she's a, a brilliant writer and it, you know, she's really not about let's create a paint by numbers thriller. Mm. She's about understanding what works and then working out how to deliver that. And so we then looked at a number of thrillers, both um, novels and films mm-hmm. and when you're viewing it critically with a mindset of understanding those conventions, you see what the author or the writer is doing. Mm. And and you realize then you have this awareness both as the you're simultaneously the writer and the audience or the writer and the reader. And you can see what the, the writer is doing and you can sense yourself as the audience responding to it. And it's yes. a fascinating um, heightened awareness that you have after you've done this course of this genre that you previously had the audacity to think you'd just sit down and pen a, pen a, pen a thriller today. Um, you know, so it was a really wonderful um, insight into that genre. And it gave me enormous, well, firstly gave me some skills and tools and awareness, and then it gave me the confidence to tackle that, you know, to, to be prepared to look at my, my work, to, to see what I had done and to view it through that lens yeah. and to not be afraid of deconstructing it and to not be afraid of rewriting it and to really enjoy that process. So to, to see the conventions of the genre, not as a burden um, or requirements that you must meet, but as this, um, as this wonderful set of guidelines that you would enjoy aspiring to and meeting. And so yeah. it's a different, a different mindset to writing actually. That's great. So let's get down to some practical discussions. You've got four children (laughs) that are like all in school. (laughs) Finally. Thank you. Love you. But thank you, God. They've all gone to school now. Oh, goodness me. So (laughs) tell me about your typical day when you are writing. Do you – how do you – where do you put in your pockets of writing? Do you have – set uh, blocks blocked out or do you write when you can? I Let's do. discuss it on a practical level. Yes, all of the above is the answer to that question. <laughs> I I love those days when I know that there's nothing in my diary, no commitments, no children to be taken to doctor's appointments, and um, and you know all those things that you love doing, but that also pull you away from your your writing. Um, so I love those days when I have a full day of writing, and on those days. I will take the children to school. I'll be. I'll come home. I will change into my tracky decks, sit down, turn the phone off, sit down, and I will write hard from 9.15 to 2.40 or 2.30 actually because I really need at 2.30 – 
I need to put it away and I need to get my head out of the world that I'm in and I need to click back into the world that I live in. Do you take breaks? um, Very, very short breaks. I don't. I don't like to. Yeah, I don't like to because I I enjoy being in – the world that I'm immersed in, even if it's often a dystopic, horrible world where, you know, terrible things are visited upon characters I love. Um, But I just find it breaks my flow and there's really no reason for it. As a mother, you, you know, I've learned to eat standing up and I've learned to to do things, to do other things um, very, very quickly. So I do try to... No, no. T- tell me, how how sh- how long are your breaks? <laughs> um, I prob- I, it depends. I do try to be organised with certain weird things. Like, I will try to if I'll try to bulk cook late at night, for example. Oh, yes. You know, because you know the children need to be fed, Valerie. Yeah, so they're Damn so it. insistent about this. So annoying. Um, Yes. So, you know, if I'm, if I haven't got a meal prepared already, you know, here's something I made earlier, children, two nights before, um, I will allow myself to stop and I will cook and therefore I will try to give myself no more than 45 minutes to create a couple of meals, do a load of laundry and eat a meal and take a wee break. Um, but, you know, time is very precious. 2.30 comes round so fast. Yeah. So that's that's a good day when I have a block. Um, I find that I don't have as many of those days as I would like. And I have in the last couple of years really tried hard and learned to steal moments. And by that, what I, because I previously used to have this idea that I really needed to have a block. I must only be able to write if I can sit at my computer for four hours undisturbed by anything. And of course, you know, it doesn't work like that. No. So what I've learned to do in the last couple of years is literally between pickups and drop-offs, particularly for a first draft, I will set myself a really aggressive word count target. And then that means that I will force myself between um, between errands and chores and between activities, I will sit down and just write very, very quickly. Like and it, in it could, the car? Yeah, in the car, um, when I'm, you know, if the children are in the shower, I will literally just do 30 words and then run back and make sure they haven't drowned standing up in the shower. You know, they're all enough. Um, it, so it's it's actually just sealing those moments and then writing in the evening. I've had to train myself to write in the evening because I've never actually been a good um, student at night. I was always an early morning person and it was really only working as a, as a lawyer that I learned to, you know, power up the brain between 9pm and, and 1am. And But with writing, with that writing process, I found I really struggled to do that late at night. And so I would reserve things like editing for late at night or research for late at night. But in the last few years, I've, I've learned to actually be creative late at night and to, to write and to create late at night. So do you work from 9 to 2.30 and then at night from 9 to 1? No, I don't. Um, on, but on the days when I haven't had a good writing day during the day uh. – I will then make myself sit down in the evening and write until I've got to where I wanted to be. So in your first draft, you said you set yourself an aggressive work count. Vaguely, what's that approximately? Well, it's if I'm trying to be kind to myself, um, 
So I sort of, I sort of lie to myself, Valerie. Yeah. I tell myself that my word count is a thousand words a day, uh-huh. but my secret word count is actually two thousand words a day. But so you what know I really, that, so it's not really a lie, is it? <laughs> well, you know, what can you do? Um, so I'm secretly working towards two thousand words a day, but I've told myself in order to manage my anxiety that it's one thousand words a day. Because if I tell myself it's two thousand words a day, and you're looking at a blank page, particularly yeah. if you're having a bad writing day, then that's really quite frightening. Whereas if you tell yourself it's just a thousand words a day, you can do it. So Um, how often do you hit your target, whether that's the secret one or the non-secret one? Um, Yeah, look, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm yeah. I'm pretty good with that first draft, but I think only because it's such a privilege to write. I, 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 it's just a wonderful feeling to sit down there and to have that world open up to you, um, and to be able to participate in that. And I think because a lot of what I write about are justice issues. They, you know, there's a massive crossover between the way that I was raised, the work that I did as a law as a lawyer, and the things that I write about. Um, it does feel like a, a privilege to explore that world and those characters. So it's, you, it's not a burden. Yes. Yeah, so would you describe your career as having now changed to become a full-time writer or are you taking a break from law, your legal career, or what is it? Uh, that's a good question. If we were sitting in a law firm interviewing, I'd say I would just take it a break. I was adding value and you know enhancing my intellectual and cultural life by writing a novel or seven. Um, I am embarking on a new career, Valerie. Let me just put it out there. Yes. I am embarking on a new career. And it's terrifying to say that because this career is fraught with peril. It is far more uncertain than any career I've ever had before. And it is largely unpaid um, or it does not pay well uh, unless you are, you know, the outliers of the world. And so we shall see, but I'm certainly embarking most sincerely and, um, you know, with great commitment to make this happen. Yeah, I have no doubt you're going to succeed. So tell us then what's next for you. What do you work? This is out. The barrier's out. Um, it's been receiving, it, It's it's been getting a great response. What's next for you? Are you already working on something? I am. Thank you for asking. I'm I'm trying to keep up with social media for starters because the barrier has been really, it's just been, it's been really well received and I've been so grateful for that support. It, it's wonderful to see it go out there and to see people enjoy it. Um, and so that in itself involves a lot of maintenance, I suppose. You know, you're, you're sort of interacting with people and pushing the book out there. And it's brilliant because you're talking to people who love the same kind of literature as you and worry about the same, you know, they have the same concerns about the world as you and they have the same politics as you. And so you have these great conversations. And so part of what I'm doing at the moment is just, um, is really just working to promote the barrier. And the second thing I'm doing, which is really my first love, is writing. And so I'm researching and working on my third piece, which is a novel set in Sri Lanka again, because I just cannot leave Sri Lanka alone. And it's set in 2009 at the end of Sri Lanka's civil war. So it looks at those last few um, climactic months leading up to the very end. And it's a political thriller again. Um, and it's set against the the geopolitics of the region because Sri Lanka is surrounded by, 
you know, this sort of rising superpower of China, an aging superpower of the United States and and India uh, and a number of other countries who all want a piece, um, a piece of the region. And Sri Lanka got caught in the middle. And so it looks at both the geopolitics of the region, but also the, the personal struggle of one particular human rights lawyer as she investigates the, the, the public execution of a high profile journalist in Sri Lanka. Wow. And so how much of it have you written? I have written a lot of it, but I'm not going to say more than that. Okay. <laughs> well, I have no doubt that we will see that on the bookshelves soon, um, in bookstores soon. Look, congratulations, Jankari, on The Barrier. It's just such a fantastic um, concept and so well executed. And um, I have no doubt you're going to go from strength to strength. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you for your support and for the support of the AWC. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our hugely popular course, How to Write About Murder, is all about creating more authentic action for your crime or thriller novel. Presented by award-winning crime author Candace Fox, this course covers nine modules of fascinating detail, taking you beyond the police tape to explore what motivates killers and how they go about their business. You'll also immerse yourself in the chase, from the murder scene and autopsy to the investigation that follows. Plus, because it's one of our on-demand courses, you'll get instant access and learn at your own pace with 12 months access to all course materials. You can find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash murdercourse. Great interview, Val. Oh, thanks. I love a good success story. And I think that Shankari has done a great job with the book. Mm. So, you know, Mm. gripping. Terrific. Yes. So I have a question for you, Al. Oh. Now now that we've had Parade and Streamers and, you know, we're going to break out the champagne and share it with the podcast community on Facebook. By the way, everyone, you should join the um, Facebook group. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and uh, and join. We'd love to um, hang out with you in the Facebook group. But now that we've done all of those things and you must be, I'm sure, breathing a sigh of relief Mm -hmm. that it's now birthed. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yes. You must be turning your head, your, your, you know, because your headspace clears just a little bit when these sorts of things happen. Mm. Um, you must be turning that headspace or deciding what to fill that headspace with. So, can you share that with us? Um, so, this is, goes to a little bit of what we were talking about earlier about mind mapping. So, first of all, it takes probably another two or three weeks of. Um, you know, doing, there's a lot of promotional kind of stuff that comes around the launch of the book. So your head is relatively filled with that for the next few weeks. Um, Mm. so I won't be doing too much thinking about anything much. I don't think for the next couple of weeks. Um, and then it will be school holidays as well. So let's not even talk about that particular moment in our lives. Uh, but I will be coming back, uh, sort of mid, probably, so the start of mid-October, I reckon, is where I'll start to really seriously think about it all again. Um, as I said, I've got three projects at the moment that I'm uh, that I've been working on. I've got um, approximately, oh, probably 
uh, I've got a third of two of them written and I've got half mm. of the third one written. So these are things that I've been sort of like um, – ideas. one of them is an idea I've had for a couple of years that I've been sort of like faffing around with and – and uh, building on because I, I I really liked the central premise of it, but I hadn't really got the supporting cast right and I didn't really have the, you know, there was just stuff that needed to be done. Um, so I think that what I will probably turn my attention to next is a um, – a series for younger readers than my current two series are aimed at. Um, I think mm. it will be for probably uh, seven plus maybe. So shorter books, um, a series and, yeah, and actually contemporary, not sort of oh. fantasy light kind of stuff like I've been doing for the last couple. Um, I do have another series like that that I've started working on, um, but I think that it's – are slightly older than the books that I have been writing. So it's probably more sort of that really that younger YA end of town. Mm. Um, and so that's um, – I'm really enjoying writing that, but I think it's going to take me a little bit more sort of time to really get the feel for where that's going to sit on the shelf. Um, mm. So I've just put it aside for a little while while I focus on the, on the other one for now. I think that's what I'll do. Well, now I'm interested to know because you <sighs> – started off, I mean, because we met when we were both feature writers, right, yeah. in, a, in glossy magazines. And features, uh, so art writing articles for magazines and newspapers is a lot uh, shorter than writing a book because the mm. book takes a much longer time, has a much huger gestation period, occupies much more thinking time. Mm. And the thing with writing magazine articles that I love is the instant gratification. Okay, it's not mm. instant, but it's way it, it's instant compared to a book. And you really have that sense of completion and yeah. it's done, it's filed, it's sent off and and you can achieve that feeling in a much shorter period of time. So I'm interested to know when you started transitioning. So you started off doing articles. And when you started transitioning to writing books, which are much longer, did you cuz I know that when I have a longer project I, it's like I have uh, almost like a burden that I that, and I don't feel that relief until the very end. Did you a did you feel that? And b was it hard to get used to it when you were so used to getting the instant gratification? Uh, yes and no. Uh, it definitely was. But I when I particularly when I first started out writing uh, novels. Um, and fiction, I was very much still, I still had a full, full schedule of magazine, uh, you know, articles to complete as well. Um, and so I've gradually tapered off from that as the books have taken more of a centre stage. So in those early days, I was very definitely still getting, um, you know, that regular dose of, of you know, publication glory. Um, mm. But what I've found, I think, over time is that, I actually prefer the longer projects. Um, really? I really, I do. Yeah. I really like the, I like, I enjoy the process of, of teasing a story out to the very end. Um, I do still tend to, you know, write those first drafts relatively quickly. Um, the one I've been working on recently, uh, was a bit slower simply for the fact that I, um, I just have had so many other things to do. Um, so I was only averaging around 500 words a day when I was doing write a book with Al over August, whereas normally I would average around a thousand. Mm. Um, but I just, you know, with the U S uh, launch of the Mapmaker Chronicles and the work that I was doing 
towards that and to sort of, um, you know, to help promote that and stuff like that, as you know, which is as much you can, all I can basically do from Australia is to, you know, write blog posts and do, do what I can. Um, mm. So there was a lot of that going on and, of course, you know, other, other jobs that I was doing and so I just, yeah, I, I sort of like that was a bit slower. But what I do try to do generally is is write a full uh, middle grade manuscript of, you know, sort of 50 to 55,000 words in approximately six weeks. That's mm. about my – or six to eight. That's about my length of um, – so I'm not – it's not taking me a year. I think if it was mm. taking me a year, I think that it would be um, – I would find that difficult um, not to get that sort of um, – reassurance, I guess. That's the thing you get when you're publishing all the time is that reassurance that your work is still of publishable quality, that yeah. you're still doing, you know, it's it's that sort of thing. Um, so there's that. And I also, I'm working probably a lot more closely with my publisher now as well because, you know, I've been with Hachette for a few years now. And so the discussion of what my next project will be comes to down to, you know, obviously what I'm working on, but also the you know, the trajectory that they would also like to see A.L. Tate's um, publishing schedule look like as well. So, mm. you know, there's there's a few more factors to be taken into consideration. But I do like – I actually really enjoy longer projects because I, I like – I mean, look at me. I write epic adventures. Like it's not like I'm trying <laughs> to write 2,000-word short stories. I, I have – apparently I have a lot to say. So, um, <laughs> you know, I do like that big canvas on which to on which to actually say it, I think. Yeah, right. And now that this is, because this is your 10th book, but your fifth middle grade book, That's do you right. find it's easier now than, say, three books ago? Well, it's an interesting thing because I think that had you asked me that three months ago, I would have said yes because <laughs> I had just completed the second book of the Ataban Cipher and mm -hmm. it had gone to copy, you know, to structural edit. And the structural edit on that one was a bit tough, but the copy edit was an absolute breeze. Like I was like, my God, look at me go. I'm obviously knowing <laughs> how to do this finally. Um, but now that I'm actually, because with the new projects I'm working on, I'm venturing into into to different territory again. So mm -hmm. it's, um, and I think every time you start something new and something slightly different, you um, you have to, it, it takes as just as much consideration in some ways as, as when you wrote your first book, like it's um, yes. you've you've got to take into you, you're sort of relearning different things. Like obviously, when I'm writing for younger kids, I have to I have to think about vocab and I have to think about um, complexity of story and I have to think about you know those sorts of things. Whereas with middle grade, I I've never really I've just basically written it as it as it um, as it came out. Um, sort of because they're generally more advanced readers, they can go with you on a slightly more complicated thing. Mm. Um, but the new A.L. Tate thing I'm working on too, the sort of new kind of fantasy thing, is definitely feeling a bit older than my usual middle grade because my uh, my protagonist is more sophisticated. Um, mm. So, you know, you've got to take all of that into consideration and then how far are you going to go with that? Is there going to be kissing? <gasps> Will there be love? <gasps> you know, will there be murder? <gasps> you know, there's all sorts of stuff that you've got to take into consideration if you're going to take it up a little bit as well. So yeah. these are just um, – and so you're making a lot of decisions and solving a lot of problems every single time you start a manuscript basically. It doesn't matter what it is, I don't think. It's an adventure in itself. It is. All right. So what are you doing this coming week As before we wrap up? 
well, I'm going to be drinking champagne and yes, blowing that's up what we were doing. Um, yeah. I've got a little launch that's happening on the weekend, um, so I'm preparing for that. That's going to be very fun. And, um, yeah, I'm just, you know, I, I, this is one of those weeks where you actually do get to bask a little bit in yes. the glory of publication. So I'm just hoping that because um, there's kind of a, that most people have held off on their reviews until tomorrow when the book is actually out, and so mm. I'm sort of waiting with <laughs> – with bated breath to see yes. how it's been received and I'm hoping it's um it's all good. It's all going to be a cracker. It's fantastic. Mm. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Well, we will be breaking out the champagne soon. We hope that you will all join us in the Facebook group as we celebrate. Um, and, of course, you can uh, do that. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community on Facebook and request to join. We'd love to see you. Where do we find you online, Al? Uh, you'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Twitter at, at altait, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you'll find me on Instagram and Facebook at Writer. And you, Val, where do we find you? <laughs> you'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram. And, of course, feel free to connect with us on Facebook. You'll find us in the Facebook group. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. This podcast only happens because of a dedicated team of awesome people behind the scenes, including Ra and Stevie, Farah, Nelly, Rex, Rocky and Procrastipup. You can find the show notes at soyouwanttobeariter.com.au and you can join the Facebook group where both Al and I hang out. Just search for So You Want To Be A Writer podcast community. It's a great bunch of people all sharing interesting things about the world of writing. And if you've made it all the way to the end here for our 200th episode, I thought I'd share this Easter egg with you. It's like my top five for the week. And I'm not even sure if it's going to be a regular thing, but here it is as a little surprise for anyone who has made it this far. It's what I'm reading, watching, loving, doing, and exploring. I'm reading, well, of course, I've recently finished reading Alison's new book, The Book of Secrets, and I really do love it. And I'm so proud of her because she's an incredible author and I hope it does really well. I also went to my favourite bookstore and I bought You Belong to Me by Colin Harrison. If you're interested, the back of the book says, Paul Reeves is a successful New York lawyer with a seemingly charmed life. He has an adoring girlfriend, a beautiful apartment on the Upper West Side and a voracious appetite for rare and beautiful maps. But when his seductive all-American neighbour, Jennifer Meraz, wife of the suave but shadowy young businessman Ahmed Meraz, desperately pleads for his help, Paul is catapulted into Manhattan's dangerous underworld. Behind its glamorous facade, this city is a dark and troubling place where anything can be bought for a high enough price. Hmm. Now that is a recommendation from Margaret, the bookstore owner, and I highly recommend that you do go visit your local bookshop and get the recommendations or the staff picks from people in the store who really love books because it's such a wonderful way to discover books that you otherwise probably wouldn't have picked up yourself or that you might not have discovered if you're just browsing around online. 
Now, I'm watching uh, I'm watching The House with Annabelle Crabb, which is a behind-the-scenes look at Parliament House in Canberra, and I've certainly learned a lot from it. On the weekend, I also watched the last episode of the television series Kingdom, which I love. It's been one of my favourite shows. It's a family drama set in uh, the, against the backdrop of an MMA gym that is a cage-fighting gym. Yes, that's. I do have a thing for cage fighting and I just loved that show. I thought it was beautifully written and beautifully acted and it's absolutely fantastic so I'm, and I'm sad it's gone. In terms of what I'm loving, I'm loving browsing the website of charliefoxtrot.com.au. This is a business in New South Wales that reconditions vintage and retro typewriters. And I love an old typewriter. I've bought a couple from Charlie Foxtrot and and I just love looking at them. I love using them. And I often go to their website for my dose of typewriter porn when they have new stock in. And there's some that I'm keeping my eye out for. But yeah, if you love old typewriters, check out charliefoxtrot.com.au. It's really gorgeous. What I'm doing this week, I'm decluttering, Um, especially since I started exploring the world of creativity and art and painting. I have so much paint and so many materials and so much equipment now all over the place that I really need to declutter. And it is certainly an ongoing process. I need a bit of help. But anyway, I'll get there in the end. And what I'm exploring, well, now I officially have my boat license, but no boat. (laughs) I'm exploring how to get on the water when you have no boat. So I guess I'll have to hire a boat. Uh, But of course, I need to find some affordable options as well. Anyway, that's my life in a minute this week. I hope you have a great week too.